Hello and welcome to the Customer Insight Leader Podcast. Data, analytics, big data, data science, machine learning, customer insight, behavioral science, blockchain, data ops, data engineering, agile working, phew, too many terms, too many things to think about. Do you as a leader need somewhere to turn, to hear what other leaders are doing, to hear what really makes a difference in your business? Welcome. The Customer Insight Leader Podcast is here for you. Each episode, we'll be interviewing a different leader in the fields of customer insight, data, and analytics to hear what they really do, what really makes a difference. So settle down, get that cup of coffee, and enjoy the Customer Insight Leader Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Customer Insight Leader Podcast, a place to hear from today's leaders in the fields of customer insight, data science, and analytics. I'm your host, Paul Lachlan, and with me today is Jesse Anderson. Jesse is a data engineer, a creative engineer, and the managing director of the Big Data Institute. He mentors leaders all over the world on big data in companies ranging from startups to Fortune 100 businesses in the USA. He's widely regarded as an expert in the field for his, his novel teaching practices, something we're going to come on to. And Jesse has published on APRESS, O'Reilly and Pragmatic Programmers. He's also been covered in prestigious publications such as the Wall Street Journal, Harvard Business Review, CNN, BBC, Wired Magazine, etc., etc. So I feel very privileged that Jesse is also joining us on this humble little podcast. Welcome, Jesse. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Great. You're more than welcome. Good to have you too. You're you're part of our growing tribe of guests who are joining this podcast from overseas. Um, But even though you are an American yourself, you're not joining us from the USA. Do you want to just let listeners know where you're joining us from today, Jesse? Sure. About two years ago, my family and I made the decision to move to Lisbon, Portugal. So I'm originally from Montana. Uh, The last place we lived in the US was Nevada. And then we made this jump and I've really enjoyed the the moving to a new place, exploring yeah. that new place, learning a new language, learning Portuguese. It's uh, it's been quite nice. I've really enjoyed it. Great, good, good for you. I, I've been to Lisbon a couple of times. I really liked it as a city. It's 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 a lovely city to walk around as well. So great. Um, with all my guests, Jesse, as listeners will be familiar, I ask them to first tell me their backstory, their career story, if you like. So the listeners know where they're coming from, the experience they're drawing on. So perhaps if we crack off with my first question, could you tell us a bit about your backstory and how you made your way to the work that you do today? Sure. So I started out my career as, in, as a self heads down coder. Hmm. And I did a lot of heads down coding. I worked my way up to a lead developer. And that was before there was a bunch of title inflation. Uh, I had (laughs) many, many years of experience before I was considered a lead. Hmm. And so I worked my way up. I spent a lot of time coding. Uh, One thing that I that will probably be interesting for people and will probably be relevant for our discussion is I'm completely self-taught. I didn't go to school at all. I learned from books. I learned from the the school of hard knocks is what we call it in the U.S. Yeah, it gave me a different view of both learning and programming. And Hmm. I'm. And sometimes people will ask, well, is it possible for somebody to do that? And I say, yes, it is possible. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not easy, 
But then again, even going to university college isn't easy either. Mm-hmm. Uh, so from there, I went, I was heads down coding, as I mentioned. I went to a company called Cloudera, mm-hmm. and I kind of made a lateral move, you might say. And I yeah. went into curriculum development and instruction, where mm-hmm. I was teaching people some pretty difficult distributed systems concepts around Hadoop, MapReduce, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And then after Cloudera, I started my company and I kind of came at it with a view of we we don't just learn technologies. Technologies in and of themselves are not just this island where you put some Hadoop in, you put some Spark in, mm. fill in the blank technology. The technology does have a purpose and it is it fills a hole, but usually it's just as much organizational change and process change as it is technical change. So I founded my company on that notion that you need all three. And if you're just attacking it from one point of view, you're probably not going to be successful. That makes good sense. And I, and I completely agree with that and, and have seen in organizations that I've collaborated and, and worked with, and, and indeed those I've worked in, actually, that that mistake of focusing on assuming technology was needed to achieve change, and it was just about learning technology skills. But but before focusing any more on that, let me let me come back to what you really painted a vivid picture of there, Jesse. So you are a contrast to other guests I've had on the podcast. You like to raise it in being so self-taught in, in the world of data leadership and data science leadership. You'll get people who've done first degrees, masters, even PhDs, because they, they so focus on that academic development, supporting their career as well. What do you think are the benefits that you've got from being self-taught from the school of hard knocks, as you put it, maybe compared to those leaders who've had so much time in university or academia? So I think the key difference is things have to work in the real world for me. I, hmm. I, I'm i not here to write a paper. I'm yeah. not here to take a survey, gather data. The only thing that works is what goes in production and serves a business value. So in that sense, mm-hmm. I, I think I have a, a much different view of uh, I, this even extends not just to data leadership. I see this with uh, uh, a lot of data scientists, PhD data scientists. Their mm-hmm. objective is the equivalent of writing a paper. It's to show it works theoretically. Mm-hmm. All right, but in business, theoretical workings don't really do anything for you. So I, I would say the biggest difference for me and perhaps the biggest learning for me is it is it has to work in production it has to work well and the only way to do that is to actually get it into production yeah yeah okay that that practical emphasis really makes sense jesse you you mentor and help a lot of leaders in and organizations around the world as i mentioned in the intro i wonder what you find is helpful in getting them to understand and put into practice what you said about change that isn't just the technology it's the people side it's the process side there's a lot more to consider than just the technology how do you help people get that and act on that to avoid just being too technology centric it takes time and effort and one big part of it uh, so since you're a consultant and i'm a consultant we see this probably more than others Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes consulting, buying, purchasing consulting is basically a first step. It's a recognition of a problem, as it were, mm-hmm. where where sometimes I I say what's I, I think of what's the first step that somebody can take, and the first step isn't necessarily to buy consulting. 
It's the, enough of a recognition of a problem that you will pay to get it fixed. Whether mm-hmm. you pay somebody internal, you pay somebody external, it's this recognition. And I think a key part of that recognition is that these problems don't write themselves on their own. And for, for some software problems, manufacturing, what have you, they'll eventually write themselves because enough time goes by, enough people get enough experience, that sort of thing. But mm. with data, data teams especially, my experience is that you don't eventually get it right. It doesn't eventually become better. Mm. It's only after having a recognition that you have a problem that you're going to spend the time and money to fix that. And I think that's what leaders need to understand. And that's usually what I'm trying to tell them is I can, I can walk in and I can tell them, Hey, you have this problem. And I can tell them that in, in a couple of days, usually that isn't the problem. The problem is, and why I work with teams for over longer periods, six to 12 months is because they need gentle coaxing and they need help along the way. They need somebody there pushing them, telling them, you have to keep doing this. This isn't just everybody feels good and I come in for a few days and tell you what's the problem. Mm. It's a concerted effort and it's a continuous effort and it's a continuous improvement rather than a uh, just in one fell swoop, we fix it. Yeah, that makes sense. It, it strikes me that in a way what you're describing is is helping them be self-taught. Your, your support is very much about being there to enable them to learn these solutions and learn how to put them into practice themselves step by step rather than just downloading a load of theory on them. Yeah, that, that's important. I, the, the things that I share, I'd, I'm not going to share a bunch of theory. And in theory, this works. And in theory, that works. Mm-hmm. What I try to impress upon them is that not only do I keep an, keep an ear out and, and consult, but I also do research on it. Uh, I have a a survey that I do to try to figure out what the best practices are. What are the people who are gaining the most amount of value doing? And so I'm trying to get people in in a more broader sense, I would say, I agree with what you're talking about, but in a more broader sense, I'm trying to get data engineering not to be like data science, where it's a very Mm. low value output relative to spend. I'm trying to get us saying, let's figure out the best practices. Let's do these best practices so that we're doing them initially and not becoming a data science 2.0. Yeah, 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 yeah. That that that, that makes good sense and, and well worth doing. One, one, one thing that I noticed was a, a different turn in your career you shared with us and, and different, to again, to other guests that I've had on this podcast. So it's great to have you with us. Um, was this move, this sudden pivot, if you like, into designing training with, with Cloudera, you, I wonder what caused you to be motivated to go into that kind of education work and how you got the skills you needed to do that? Because I hadn't heard anything else in your career up till that point that had taught you how to teach others or taught you how to put together educational material. Why did you make the change and how did you get good at it? Uh, there's a longer story behind that one that I won't bore you with, but <laughs> I've spent a lot of time public speaking and teaching people. And so I, I had basically put that on the shelf and said, okay, I, I probably won't be doing that because here's this software engineering where you don't have to talk to people and you can sit in a corner and just code. Right. So I thought, okay, my, my days of public speaking are over. 
And then lo and behold, there I found out that not every software developer will stand up in front of a thousand people and speak to them. Indeed. And, and so that was that realization of, oh, wow, here's this whole aspect of things I've spent years improving and working on that is valuable and I can bring to bear. And so that was that was switching into cons, uh, curriculum development and, and instruction. It was twofold. It was bringing that back and, and seeing that I did enjoy that and I did enjoy teaching. Mm-hmm. And it was a skill that most people don't have. And and mm-hmm. two, it was a, it was bringing a a different sort of point of view. So I I would say there's a, a few a few dark secrets or secrets in the training industry, and that is oftentimes the person who wrote the course or the person who's teaching the course does know does doesn't know very much about the technology. Mm-hmm. Or has never used it in anger, has never programmed, has never fill in the blank. It's mm-hmm. a it's a true theoretical practice for them. Mm-hmm. And so me having actual professional experience coding brought I brought a difference to that that uh, most curriculum developers do not have. They they don't know how to code, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. I wonder because of that, then Jesse, would you recommend to anyone listening to this podcast who's got technical expertise hands-on experience coding and and in data work um, and can speak in front of people that this is a real need area should more technical people be moving into educational development and and training because there aren't enough practitioners there i would say if you if you have there's a few issues in the training industry one of them is one i just mentioned but there's also a pretty significant downward pressure on pricing. And that was part of the reason why I've, I personally have, I teach a lot less than I used to. Mm-hmm. And that is everybody's expecting personal touch with MOOC level pricing. Yes. Uh, the, so they want Coursera classes for $20, 20 euros, where they can contact you day or night with questions. And that just doesn't work as a, as a business, quite honestly. No. And, so there, there is also another part to to that, and and I'm not, I haven't figured out what's happened or why it's happened, but there's been a high expectation of the trainer or the person teaching, and a lower expectation of themselves. And so, to more more correctly to your more generally to your point, if you are sitting there thinking, I would love to go and start speaking and training more, know that there's been some changes like that in the industry. And go into them with your eyes open. Uh, if those things sound uh, don't sound like fun, then be forewarned that the the training industry is is has basically created its own problems, in my opinion, where they put forward people who didn't really know what they were doing when they were standing in front of the classroom, and they were given materials that were pretty crappy to begin with. And so they've created their own downward reinforcing cycle that now we're at this point of nobody wants to pay for it because it's crappy. And uh, it's, 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 a, it's a major problem for the industry. Okay, okay, okay. Thank, thank, thanks for sharing your view. I'm definitely going to get some comments on that one. So thanks, Jesse. But I, I recognize the problems that you're calling out. I really do. And I say that as a trainer. <laughs> the, the other thing I, I noticed when we, when we spoke before 
was you were mentioning that during this time when you were delivering these courses and, and, and passing on your expertise, you were spotting, if you like, the wrong people turning up for the wrong courses. You had people who clearly weren't, weren't sure what the topic meant or what they needed to learn. And I wonder whether that identification of that issue means you're uh, a fan of specialisms. You think data scientists need to just go on data science course and we need data engineers to go on data engineering courses and maybe data ops people who go on data ops courses. Uh, is that where you sit in your perspective, Jesse, that it's all about niche specialisms or do you still see a need for generalists these days? I see some need for generalists. However, those generalists, it, it's difficult for generalists to know when their when their skills are exceeded. And that's usually the issue I, I saw, especially in data, especially in distributed systems, okay. that there was this, there's this massive um, step function in terms of complexity. Mm. So going from hello world to something that, that does something, that's a pretty sizable difference. And so the the generalist would often have a difficult time either recognizing that or getting past that. Mm-hmm. And, and so that led me to saying, yes, we need these people who are specialists. Uh, however, I, I still think that we need generalists. But for data, for distributed systems, I think it's enough of a difficult enough of a problem that you need specialists for two reasons. One is the knowledge. There's a sizable, sizable amount of knowledge that you need to have to do Spark correctly. Yeah. Now you might be thinking, well, I, I heard this this conference talk, or I heard this vendor webinar telling me how easy it was. Mm. I'm sorry, mm. but it's not easy. Mm. Our mm. our hello worlds look like other other technologies, intermediate to advanced levels. Yeah. And the other reason that it's important is that there's this thing, a, a term that I've called the ability gap. And what that means is not everybody's going to be able to get to the level of complexity that this does, that this has. Mm-hmm. And it's not a knock on the person. Uh, I've seen people hitting this and they think it's a, and a question of time, a question of effort. And the, the honest truth is it's neither. It's that they're not suited for what they're trying to do and someone else is better suited to it. Mm-hmm. It's just a different enough um usage a different enough task occupation that they're they're trying to cross over into too many different different areas yeah okay i i see that jesse i think it's a fair call funnily enough i've recently been reading a book called data mesh by degani published by o'reilly and astonished how much depth there actually is behind that concept rather than just the kind of buzz speak you you, you hear from sponsors so and suppliers so I, I completely get that truly understanding some of these topics is is real depth and even just being a, a t-shaped person may, may not cut it you may need to be a, a genuine specialist but i wonder then well, to add to add to that uh yes. so I, I i i i gave one of the forwards for for jamak's book and i talked to where I, I do believe in data mesh and as a concept yes to add to your point uh, you come away with a bunch of books that you haven't read where she'll refer to uh, you need to have your your team set up this way or that way. And here's the book about it. So yes. I read two or three books just out of that because she refers to them as if here's here's this core knowledge you need. And whether you're managing a data mesh or you're you're working on another 
in a more technical role, it's very similar. There's mm. a sizable amount of background knowledge you need, and yeah. we just kind of assume it. And it can it can take months to to clear that backlog of of technical back background you need. Yeah, no, I can completely uh, concur with that, Jesse. I, I get I get the depth, and I mean, I've I've got an IT background and, and decades of working in the data and analytics space, and and building on I guess what would be old style architecture these days. And it, it still took me quite a while to make sure I'd properly got the concepts correct in my head. But but I wonder, given that organizations tend to struggle to already speak to their technical people, and as we mentioned before, not all people who've got that kind of technical depth want to communicate and interact with, with business stakeholders. Are we still speaking about the generalists have a role in that translation, relationship management, business partner kind of space? But we need to make sure we invest in them having enough technical knowledge to do that as well. I think we still need generalists, but I would also say that the data engineers need to be talking to the end customers too. Yeah, okay. Uh, the, yeah. the truly, the most productive data teams, especially data engineering teams, are the ones that are directly interfacing with their customer. Mm. And this is, uh, I, I, I tell people in, in Agile, there was always this, notion that you were supposed to be talking and interfacing with your customer but you yeah. could get away with it if you didn't mm. here in with data it's very blatant if you are not interfacing with your customer what you create will not be used by them because they're wanting something different yeah 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 that that makes that makes good sense a nice analogy to agile as well. it reminds me of the whole um federation into domains with with data products and the the data and code together encapsulated i guess it's the same that you say you can't have these federated domains of producing data products not having the business and technology people both talking to each other effectively within those domains so i i i do see why that that's important jesse i know before i've heard of your speaking out about the need for data engineers and that uh, it's obviously a it's your tribe it's 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 your call celeb in some ways um and the organizations were rushing into getting data scientists and what they really needed was a data engineer and i support you and, and applaud you that you called that out earlier than many people but given you were alert to that problem i wonder what you see organizations as missing now that you know the world has moved on most organizations who've made serious progress in being data-driven have recognized the need for data engineering skills, maybe recognizing some kind of data ops capability now as well. What do you think they're missing these days? What's the equivalent now of that time when everyone thought it was just a data scientist and they missed the need for a data engineer? Sometimes it's okay, they went out and hired that data engineer, but is that the right data engineer? So okay. to add difficulty into our industry, there are two definitions of the data engineer. One definition is more of a SQL focused person. Yeah. The other definition is a software engineer who specialized in big data. That's my mm. definition. Mm. Mm. And, and so what will happen is people will say, look, Jesse, we have data engineers. And you peer in, you say, those are data warehouse people. Those are, those are DBAs. Those are... ETL developers. Mm -hmm. And those are different than the skills that are needed for the next level of, of data. Mm -hmm. uh, so mm -hmm. you do need to have a programming background in order to do this right. 
and that's where that that's where I'd be looking if if you're let's say you're a CEO or chief analytics officer listening to this or team lead what have you that if you're hitting some sort of issue with productivity where you have hit a level of complexity where people just can't get anything going yeah that's what I'd be looking at it sound uh, uh more than likely you have the wrong people that isn't to say go get rid of all those other people that more than likely means you don't have the right either mix or don't even have that those people on the team so mm -hmm. you look and you look at the resumes of people and nobody's had a hardcore software engineering background yeah. more than likely you will hit this problem of and, and let me expand on why this what this why this isn't why this happens yeah so with with a sql team they only have one tool they only have sql so mm. if it can't be done with sql then it can't be done at all yeah and that's a that's a ma major problem so that can't be done at all means that things that the business requires just can't be done period so you need a mix of software and uh, software code as well as sql to be able to do this and that's that's one key uh it, it, if you do have the right people you have all all the right teams um, through my research, through that uh, survey that I was mentioning, hmm. uh, some companies are missing their operations team. So there's a missing part of who's keeping this going, who's making sure it's it's working well. Uh, perhaps the the other finer points are people who are looking. Let's say you have you have things in production. Who's making sure that it's running well? Who's yeah. making sure that the data quality is up to par? Who's doing hmm. those data quality checks? Hmm. Who's calling it out if those data quality checks fail? There's a lot of there's a lot of things that can be done. Uh, you you could also start to make the argument of we need ML ops people. I yeah. would agree with that argument. Uh, it depends on how much machine learning you're doing, and yeah. your normal operations team can't really do the ML ops side simply because it's it's a bit different than what they've dealt with before. Okay, they they, they all they all make good sense, Jess. And it's it's interesting. I, several things that you've you've touched on there resonate with points that Mac was making in his book as well. And this whole development of that architecture, in a way, more to be accessible to the generalist coder than to people with a with a data background who maybe haven't got such such coding depth. I wonder whether you think we're almost almost returning to where we started from and seeing the place anew in that it feels to me like with someone who had an IT background before I moved into data and analytics and started creating those kind of teams, there was a time at which the real forefront of data and analytics progress was out in businesses, outside IT teams. It was faster moving, it was more autonomous. And yet it seems with the more we're making progress in the adoption and deployment of current technology, I hear more and more people talk about greater and greater IT specialism. Are we kind of folding back around and coming back to actually all this work is the IT department again? I, I think we are, I, though I would say it's the data team, not necessarily IT, because okay. in, depending on the organization, mm -hmm. maybe that should be under the chief data officer rather than a chief technology officer per se. Yeah. But that's a whole different discussion. Hmm. But yes, I think what's happened is we're hitting a volume, we're hitting a complexity, we're hitting technologies 
that you're we're not just creating a, a dashboard, a simple dashboard. We're not yeah. doing something in Power BI. Yeah. We're trying to do something that's so much more complex, that's integrating many more systems that you can't just have a lower lower complexity bar handle it. It is a much higher bar of complexity. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I, I can I can understand and, and interesting where that will take us in, t- in terms of how they're developed. Okay, well, let, let's pick up on what you mentioned a couple of times and quite rightly, because it, it is interesting to share with the, the listeners, which is this annual survey that you do. Um, you, you spend a lot of time focusing on helping people design and improve effective data teams. And, and a part of your offering is this annual survey comparing what the best teams do compared to the worst. Share with us what, what your latest results show. What are the biggest differences that distinguish data teams that are truly effective from those that aren't doing so well? There's, uh, if you go to the to the page, and uh, I don't know if you'll give the links, but it's just do a Google search for Jesse Anderson data team survey 2023. And there's a video on there where I kind of go through this as well as the image in there. So there's this image where I break down team effectiveness and the best practices that they do. And so on there, there's there's really several interesting takeaways. And the first one is that there are some best practices that both low and high value team value creation teams do. They're, yeah. The low ones do it far less and the high ones do it far more. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some some uh, issues that the that the low value teams are doing that the high value teams aren't and that's just a a nature of a either a nascent team or a team that's underperforming that they've been around for a while they just can't get past go as it were Hmm. and then the third part of that is there are best practices that the that the high value creation teams are doing that the low value creation teams aren't doing at all and those are more advanced best practices where they've gotten past the the easy stuff they've gotten past the kind of the mid level and now they're they're really starting to hit a different level of growth pains so the takeaways that i would tell for people listening is there are certain issues that you're going to hit that will always just be there this is the nature of business this is the nature of the beast this is the nature of humanity as it were uh getting great requirements for example whether you're low performing, high performing, it's always going to be a problem. Hmm. Your business people just don't know what they're talking about or know what they want. <laughs> okay, we all recognize uh, that. Uh, yeah, we all recognize that. But at the same time, the, the the other key takeaway is, hey, if your team is your your the the teams doing these more advanced parts, they only get there after getting through the the slog. There is a slog to get through. Mm-hmm. But it is a concentration and a focus on getting a few things done rather than trying to do them all at once. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, I hear that, Jesse, and it makes sense that there is this need to really focus and, and prove value in, in delivering incrementally, I guess would be some, some of the language around that. When you describe that there are some other things that are almost telltale signs, if you like, of the high performers who've got through the slog, what kind of things are there? If people are listening now and they think, I reckon we might be a high performing team, what would you be expecting to see from your survey is in place that less effective teams just don't have? 
So the one key one that was a clear indicator was the presence of all three teams. So in my book, Data Teams, I talk about your data team should be made up of data engineering, data science, and operations. Mm -hmm. And the clear indication is that the highest value creating teams have at, at a minimum two or at least three. And so you can see that in the data, I have a chart there breaking it down of hmm. here's the value creation based on number of teams. If there's just data engineering, if there's just data science, they will struggle to create value. Hmm. And it's not just an issue of not enough people. That, that's, that's, that, that's definitely somewhat part of it. But the key part of it is that they're missing key people. They're missing entire specializations to, as we were just talking about, you just have a data science team, which is a somewhat unfortunately common thing, mm. uh, and you're missing data engineers completely. Your data engineer, your excuse me, your data scientists are having to do data engineering, and they're woefully, woefully terrible at it. <laughs> and so you have your data scientists doing something that they're, uh, in some cases, eighty percent inefficient at. So they, what would take them a month to do? will take a real data engineer, a qualified data engineer, two or three days to do. Mm -hmm. And this is what compounds. You have a, a data science team missing those people and therefore woefully inefficient, woefully ineffective because they're missing those right people. So that's that's one clear indicator of, of what, what teams need to have. Uh, other ones are correctly defined uh, people. So you you heard me talk about you can say you have a data engineer, but are they really a qualified data engineer? Were they yeah. were they a, a data warehouse person? And you said, okay, you're magically a data engineer, and you now somehow know how to program. Mm -hmm. That isn't quite the case. Uh, or operations, do your operations people know how to operate and maintain what they're talking about? Mm -hmm. uh, so those those are a few key ones where. When when we talk about value creation, value creation is the result of the business having the confidence in and the ability to create value with that data, and that confidence in is is a key part of it. If you if you if every time you try to go use it and it's down, or your data quality is so poor yeah. that you that the business questions it, it just isn't it isn't of any value. So we have a problem. We need to go back and look at those problems. And th that's where this data, that's where this survey is, is me trying to get data from the real world saying, mm -hmm. are you seeing what I'm seeing? And now I have a uh, comparison of a previous year to be able to show, yes, this is, this is an issue. If we don't have these people in place, we won't, we, we won't get, gain the value of data that we're, we're talking about. Right. That makes makes good good sense, Jesse. And I encourage listeners to go and check it out. I think absolutely those watch outs as to what you may not have in place or the things that will limit your effectiveness is is well worth looking at. We're blind to our blind spots as the as the old wisdom goes. One thing I want to make sure we cover before we close, Jesse, is um, as I've shared with you before, uh, a significant portion, maybe even half of the listenership to this podcast are much earlier in their careers. So maybe they've still got a chance to do things differently and be better prepared for this world with such specialism, um, but still quite a lot of lack of clarity about job titles. 
how do you think they should focus in order to go on to succeed? What skills and knowledge would you encourage them to focus on developing now to be ready for how this world is evolving? So I'll answer the question two ways. I'll answer it for individuals and I'll answer it for management because I I think the answers are different enough for each one. So for individuals, we have this whole chat GPT and people saying Mm -hmm. programming is going to go away. I don't think it is. I think it's going to change how we do certain parts of programming, certain Mm -hmm. parts of how we do that. Probably it will change our productivity levels. Mm. But I don't think it's going to do away with programming. I don't think it's going to magically make it so that the person with the MBA sitting behind you or some sort of business analyst will magically become a programmer. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think that's going to happen. So what we do need to do is to figure out what is our key our key difference what is our what is the thing that we do that's different and better than others and then try to improve that uh, sometimes there's a focus on what do you do poorly and let's improve your where you're poor at uh, there's arguments and research that says no f- figure out what you're good at and yeah. lean into your strengths rather than into your weakness absolutely so you let's let's say you're sitting there and you're thinking i'm a pretty decent programmer well, what I'd encourage you to think about is, is there a, 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 an, a, either an adjacent or something that you're interested in that you could get to 80% in, and that would actually completely change the way you're perceived in terms of your, your value. Let's say, let's say you cross-train in marketing. So you're a programmer, you've cross-trained in marketing. Now that means that you can handle things and understand things that most other software engineers couldn't because they wouldn't understand CLV, customer mm. customer lifetime value. Yes. And you could say, oh, I know what customer lifetime value is. So by getting to that 80% in, of knowledge in marketing, you didn't deal with the long tail. Mm. Uh, you didn't have to spend a long time getting that remaining 20%, but you're able to understand that 80%, that makes you pretty pretty valuable up, mm. a, up, a, up mm. front. So think about that. Think about how you can how you can lean into that. Think about how you can make yourself more productive. At the same time, I, I do find people who are questioning their technical abilities. Am I good enough at X? Is my imposter syndrome real or is it fake? Yeah. Um, I can tell you as somebody who's self-taught, I, every time I sat in one of those meetings, I had just the worst imposter syndrome. Because I was self-taught, I'm looking mm. at all these people with their college degrees, thinking I, I must not be as good as them as them. Mm. And it only took me it took me a long time to get over that and to realize uh, what really matters is not necessarily your college degree. It, what matters is the quality of the code that you get in, put out, the value you create. Yeah. Uh, with that said, there are some people in technical roles that maybe. Maybe there's something better for you than a technical role. Maybe you're you're not the best coder. Maybe you can take your background in coding and apply that in some sort of management. Mm. Maybe maybe a project manager. Maybe it's this. Maybe it's that. And there's no there's no shame in in admitting that. Mm-hmm. There there is it is a shame though if you're if you're spending spending your time banging your head against a wall. Mm. Figure out something better, more appropriate for you. And maybe you'll be a much happier person and find your your niche within the world. 
so now for managers, um, things are changing management wise. And I think it's important that managers understand that you have the right people. And I would say more importantly, having very frank and honest looks at both yourself and your team. So yeah. if you are, um, if your team is underperforming, take a look at that team, uh, really separate out that ego or what you think and really look at the data, really look at, take a close look at what's happening. Yeah. Uh, for, for management on a personal level, think about that same thing. How can you uh, start to cross train in a way that's that, that will make you more effective, make you more marketable, make you have even, even better odds? It used to be that everybody thought you'd just go to school and get an MBA. I'm not so sure about that. I, maybe it's... Maybe it's getting taking a statistics class mm -hmm. where you start to understand some of the math behind it, mm -hmm. or perhaps it's a it's understanding your data science counterpart better. There, yeah. there are things that you as a manager can dig deeper into. Um, one big thing I would say for managers especially is, is to start developing that spidey sense on <laughs> what's real and what's fake. Yeah. So you will see a lot of a lot of things in technology, technology trends, and those technology trends may or may not be real. Mm -hmm. They'll be out there, but whether they're appropriate for your team, for your company or not, uh, know when your team is trying to pad their resume or doesn't mm -hmm. know what they're talking about either. Mm -hmm. So be careful, uh, check your trends, and try to make the best decision possible. Yeah, that make, makes makes good sense. Good call for both communities, Jesse. Thank you. Thank you for that. Completely agree. There is a need for people to develop better critical thinking, really. Um, and and I, and I like your call out to as well as the specialism that we focused on in quite a lot of this conversation. There's also that benefit of a, a sidebar, really, of something else that you cross skill in to at least an 80% level so that you can you can fluently be that 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 hybrid role that makes people more effective niche contributors quite often actually jesse that's been great Th thanks for your thoughts today um, many thanks for your time i will share a link to the survey in in the podcast description as well as i thought jesse it's been a pleasure to chat with you thank you for all you shared well, thank you everybody for listening thanks for having me on paul best of luck everybody thank you jesse and thank you everyone for listening I hope you found that helpful and continue to listen to the Customer Insight Leader podcast. More great interviews coming up. And each week, there's also fresh content on our blog, customerinsightleader.com. So you might want to check that out too. Before then, it just remains for me to again say thank you to everyone for your time. Have a great week. And perhaps you can reflect on, on some of the themes we're, dis we're discussing. Do you need to encourage and nurture more, more specialism, maybe even more self-taught educational development within your team? Do you know the people that you need in your team? Are you being critical enough in, in identifying what is strong performance and the skills that people really do need to have? Plenty of food for thought from Jesse. Anyway, bye for now, everyone.